this is, I, I, I am, uh, I want to put a set of questions to them that will help us have this conversation, but I really hope it is a conversation um, that we can have amongst ourselves and with you about what the hell is going on and where is it going. So I'm gonna pose a question to each of them and maybe if Pierre doesn't mind, he, he can start and then I'll pose more questions and then you can pose questions uh, to them as well. Uh, so I'm gonna start with Pierre and um, I'm gonna give them each the first question that I want to ask them and then I'll, I'll give them the floor. So uh, Pierre is an expert on sanctions, particularly financial sanctions. This I think is extremely important because the West seems to view uh, financial sanctions heavier than we have ever imposed before as likely to work. And, and my experience with financial sanctions, particularly with uh, Iraq, for example, is that they usually uh, fail uh, quite gloriously. But they seem to be having some effect, so I, I, I'd love to hear uh, Pierre's uh, view on that. Uh, uh, Kirsten, if, if you wouldn't mind uh, going next, uh, I listened to your wonderful podcast with Risa. Um, it, it was uh, it was scary because they, you talked before the invasion, and you literally said this is what's going to happen, and it feels like that is what happened. And it was maybe a couple of weeks before. I don't know when you recorded it, uh, but I'd like if you don't mind talking about uh, the what is going to happen with uh, cyber operations because this, like with sanctions. It feels like this is a different world that we are going into or maybe have already gone into with cyber operations in this particular context with both Ukraine and Russia. And of course, the US is actively involved. And um, for Paul, I'm hoping we can start with how, how we messed up our predictions so badly. Paul, for those of you who know him, he's just such a gentle, kind person. He, he does not like to criticize. So I'm asking him, how did we screw things up so badly in terms of our predictions about what was going to happen? Um, and how are we screwing things up now in terms of our predictions about what is going to happen? So let, let me give it to Pierre. If, if you don't mind. And feel free to revise my question to be the right question that you think is worth addressing. Sure, thank you very much. I don't mind going first. I'm going to get to Rich last because, um, and I should have said this, because he is, um, he is on the ground. He, he's literally, he started, I think, the first uh, law firm office for a Western law firm, for is it Kudair Brothers that that you did? You don't even know Kudair Brothers, right? You never even heard of it. It it used to be the fanciest firm in the world with all sorts of French trappings and very very fancy. He must be very very fancy. Um, I, I think they went defunct. Um, but uh, he is now closing the Baker and McKinsey office in Moscow. Uh, but I hear about peace talks, and maybe he's going to just open a bigger office. I'd be very interested, like, how the hell is this stuff uh, affecting what is happening on the ground for lawyers? But, Pierre. Uh, okay, so, yes, we can start with financial sanctions. They've been a very you know, substantial part of the Western <coughs> response to the, uh, to the war uh, that's going on now. Uh, now, for those of you who are not familiar with sort of the basics of this, um, the legal authority for most, not all of the sanctions that have been imposed by the United States, especially with respect to the Russian financial sector, is a statute called the uh, IEEPA, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. And this is basically a statute that gives the President of the United States very, very broad authority to impose a range of sanctions on foreign countries and persons. Uh, technically, the way it works is that the president has to declare something called a national emergency, which is under separate legislation. And uh, it's not as impressive as it sounds. There are dozens of national emergencies uh, in, in, uh, in effect at any given time 
uh, and the formalities for declaring them are, 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 are you know, fairly, uh, fairly light. So there's a lot of discretion on the part of the U.S. executive to declare those, and then that enables use of the IEEPA uh, that allows uh, the president, once again, to block assets and prohibit basically all dealings with foreign persons uh, by, and that applies to two categories, that applies in two categories of circumstances. It applies to U.S. persons, which is basically all U.S. nationals and companies. So if you are a U.S. company uh, that has been, uh, if you're a U.S. company, you're prohibited from basically engaging into any kind of transaction anywhere in the world or holding assets anywhere in the world for someone or some, some entity that has been designated. And also, uh, in the United States, these transactions are also prohibited to anyone, even to foreign persons in the United States, a foreign bank in the United States. Um, so this is very broad, uh, and it can be used very broadly. So Iran, for example, is the subject, uh, uh, so broadly speaking, of a blanket IEEPA designation so that if you are a US national, Basically, any dealings with anyone in Iran are prima facie prohibited, subject to certain licenses that have been issued over time that carve out exceptions for things like humanitarian dealings and some travel and things like that. Cuba, uh, although that's under older legislation. So there are countries that are subject to these kind of blanket bans. Um, Russia is not like that. And the approach that has been taken uh, since 2014, since the, uh, the Crimea uh, takeover and the other events that happened around that time, uh, has been to use the legislation a bit more flexibly. So the legislation doesn't have to be used in a sort of, uh, on a sort of blanket basis. It can be used in a more tailored way to target specific individuals, specific organizations, uh, and to narrow the range of transactions that are prohibited not, for example, prohibiting all transactions with a specific designated person, but prohibiting only certain kinds of transactions and carving out certain exceptions. So after Crimea happened in 2014, uh, the United States imposed sanctions on a number of organizations and persons in Russia and in the breakaway regions and in Crimea who were involved in, in this, and started imposing limited sanctions on certain sectors of the Russian economy, for example, uh, prohibiting new debt and equity issuances by uh, by certain uh, sectors, such as and prohibiting investment in the in the energy sector. And the reason I'm giving you this background is 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 to make it clear that the approach that's been taken in the past few weeks in response to the invasion of Ukraine is basically a ramping up of the same approach. Um, so the United States has basically used the same legal framework and used the same general approach, but uh, notched it up several uh, in several stages uh, and you, you know you really need to keep a list uh, to keep track of all of the different kinds of sanctions that have been imposed but focusing specifically on the financial sector let me give you some of the main things that things that have happened uh, the first is what's called uh, capta sanctions on uh, Sberbank, the largest bank in russia by some significant margin uh, has been subject to restrictions on uh, prohibition basically on U.S. banks maintaining correspondent accounts and payable through accounts for it. This essentially makes it uh, much more difficult for that bank to, uh, to uh, process payments in the United States because that is the way U.S. payments are made internationally is that they uh, ultimately have to go through accounts at correspondent banks that foreign banks maintain at in the United States to be cleared, and being shut out of that system makes uh, the life of uh, Sberbank much harder. Um, with respect to some other uh, Russian banks, the sanctions have been more sweeping. They have been fully designated as uh, what's, what are called SDNs, specially designated nationals, uh, and that means that it's not just maintaining correspondent accounts in the United States for them that's prohibited, but all transactions, all dealings by U.S. persons uh, are prohibited, which is uh, much more sweeping. In some cases, the CEOs, individuals associated with these banks, have also been designated, so they are now subject to blocking sanctions in the United States. Some banks 
have been expelled from expelled from what it's called the SWIFT system, which is a system uh, of financial messaging between banks by which they arrange and coordinate payments. That is a system that's based in Europe. So the actual order was given by uh, the European Union as part of this G7-led effort to coordinate sanctions. Um, one thing that is uh, quite important is that the U.S. is now... Um, even though they're not technically SDNs, has effectively imposed something very close to full blocking sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia, the Ministry of Finance, and the National Wealth Fund, which is uh, sort of the, uh, the, uh, the, the sovereign wealth, wealth fund that Russia has uh, out of its mostly its energy export revenues. Uh, that is uh, an unprecedented move in many ways, at least for a central bank of a country of that importance. Uh, sanctions were uh, applied to the Iranian central bank in the past, but this is a much bigger deal. Um, and uh, there are several other uh, initiatives that have been taken, uh, and such as uh, denying lending from international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, uh, a prohibition on export of U.S. banknotes to Russia, uh, as well as Euro banknotes, uh, prohibition on U.S. financial institutions to participate in transactions involving debt other than very short-term debt uh, issued by a number of important Russian companies or banks. So a big ramp-up of financial sections, tailored, not completely sweeping, but much more sweeping than what was in place before. And, uh, and that is also one thing that is worth noting that is also unprecedented about this is that while most of these things were already in the toolbox that they had been used, especially against Iran, they have never been used uh, or ramped up so rapidly. Uh, companies, banks always had uh, quite a lot of lead time to think about how to implement these sanctions uh, in the past. Uh, Iran is a situation that developed over a number of years. Uh, whereas in Russia, uh, basically the gov government has been throwing everything at this situation in a very short period of time. The other big difference is that there are much greater multilateral cooperation than in the past. Sanctions against Iran were coordinated for a time uh, with the EU, uh, although after the, uh, G uh, the joint comprehensive plan was adopted, the EU kind of withdrew from sanctions and did not readopt them. Uh, it was a somewhat coordinated effort. This is much more coordinated. Basically, all of the major Western jurisdictions are adopting similar sanctions at about the same time. Uh, and so that's also a major innovation that, uh, is, uh, that changes the game. So this, I've stayed on a pretty descriptive level for the moment. I, I think I'll stop there for now, uh, and then we can come back a little bit to discuss later you know, the impact and, and the, few, the prospects for the future. Can, can I just ask you one little follow-up on this before I turn it over to Kirsten? Um, I was reading this morning that the, there are already innovations in trying to get around the sanctions, and I'm I'm wondering if you could just give us a quick, uh, quick and dirty answer on: Is it very easy to get around it? So I, I was reading that India, for example, that has been uh, much closer to Russia over the years and is cooperating with them, uh, is setting up a ruble payment system. Is that sort of thing easy, or is this are these sanctions biting seriously enough? Well, it is. You know, that is the ten thousand dollar question, right? That's been around for a long time. Which is, you know, to the extent that uh, the United States and other Western countries ramp up these kinds of sanctions, to what extent does it uh, incentivize other, not only the targets of the sanctions to find ways around them, but third countries that want to keep dealing with them to find ways uh, around the sanctions? Um, and I guess the assumption has always been that the U.S. dollar, the euro, that the, you know, the core reserve currencies are so important in terms of reserves, in terms of international transactions, that it is not very easy or that useful to create uh, an alternative system. Uh, and, uh, and, and that you know, it would not be very... You know, India sets up a system, for example, to process payments in rubles. Well, what exactly is the benefit of that for Russia? Right? They're, so they're exporting oil or energy, say, to, uh, to India. Uh, you know, India uh, pays in rubles, which means that, you know, first of all, where did they get the rubles? Uh, and uh, if they pay Russia in rubles, what is the benefit of getting rubles in exchange for 
you know, for your, uh, your energy exports. How does that help Russia? Russia could print its own rubles. So you kind of have to uh, sort of think about what are really the benefits of doing that. It's not just about the uh, processing of payments, but it's also, about, it's not, in other words, it's not just about putting infrastructure in place, but it's about whether you're going to get anything useful out of it if you are Russia. And uh, the second thing I would note is that um, there's always the possibility lurking in the background that if these efforts actually turn out to be successful, the next step for the United States, which should be a big, which would be a big step to take, would be to start thinking about secondary sanctions. So uh, imposing, starting to designate third country organizations, people uh, who participate in these schemes uh, so that they themselves become subject to U.S. sanctions. And that is something that I think people know is on the table and perhaps may serve to deter these kinds of efforts to some extent. Thank you. Kristen, can, can we turn to you? Sure. So in the lead up to the invasion, there were concerns among the cybersecurity folks about basically two big buckets of things. The first was direct attacks on Ukraine. And the second was attacks on Ukraine that would spill over into the West. And maybe there's even a third bucket of direct attacks on other countries. Although I don't think people really thought that that was going to come to pass immediately. So the concerns about the first two things, direct attacks on Ukraine and spillover, were because both of those things had happened before and Russia had done them. So Russia has uh, repeatedly engaged in cyber attacks against Ukraine. They've turned the power off to Kyiv a couple of times. Um, and the biggest, most expensive cyber attack in history was something called NotPetya in 2017. It looked like it was ransomware. It was a supply chain attack against Ukrainian <laughs> accounting software. But it didn't stay in Ukraine. It went around the world and hit companies like FedEx, Maersk, Merck, um, and ended up causing about $10 billion in damage. So we'd sort of seen those playbooks before. And so the question was, if the invasion was going to happen, you know, how was Russia, which is a major cyber power, going to use its cyber power in the service of a hot conflict? And so there's been a lot of headlines in the last couple of weeks about like the cyber war that didn't happen or like where are the cyber attacks? And I think some of those raise really interesting questions, but part of what's coming out over time is that actually there have been cyber attacks of the kind that were expected. So there was a, um, just as, as Russia was invading, there was an attack on um, a company called Viasat, which provides satellite internet service. And this attack took out um, the it basically bricked or made inoperable a bunch of modems that were used in Ukraine, but also in other places. It's a U.S. company, but the modems were used in other places across Western Europe. And it, um, in taking out the functionality of these modems, it Ukrainian officials have now said really did harm communications in the very early days of the invasion. It also did things like take out communications to a couple thousand wind turbines in Germany. So we saw an attack on the kind of target we would have expected at communications facilities, coincident with the invasion, and it spilled across borders. Nonetheless, that's more or less it. Not totally yet. There have been distributed denial of service attacks. There's been some evidence of wiper malware showing up across Ukraine, something like NotPetya. But it hasn't been as uh, destructive or as widespread as people feared it could be. And so that raises interesting questions about why. Is that because Russia tried and failed, or is it because Russia didn't try? I think either one of those things is pretty interesting. So if Russia tried and failed, that tells you perhaps something interesting about the efficacy of defenses. So normally in cybersecurity, the sort of mantra is that offense trumps defense. It's very hard to defend against cyber attacks because there's so many vulnerabilities, and a determined, sophisticated attacker will find a way in. So it could be eventually that we will find out that actually the defenses worked pretty well. So if you know what you're trying to defend at the particular time you're trying to defend and against whom you're trying to defend, maybe that suggests the offense-defense balance shifts a little bit. There's been some hints about what's happening. So um, in a congressional hearing on the, this is the annual threat assessment of the intelligence community, Congress has hearings with intelligence community officials every year when this, this report is released. General Nakasone, who's the director of U.S. Cyber Command and the head, of, or he's the director of the NSA and the head of U.S. Cyber Command, um, said that the United States has worked really, really hard with Ukraine to harden their defenses since Russia turned the power off in 2015 and 2016. 
And there have also been suggestions that the United States um, U.S. Cyber Command has uh, mission teams deployed across Eastern Europe. So it may be that the defenses we're talking about are pretty active defenses and there could be skirmishing going on with Russia. The other possibility, though, is if Russia didn't try cyber attacks, why and what does that tell us sort of going forward? Now, of course, we've seen with Russia's conventional forces a lot of problems with lack of planning and just real logistics issues. Cyber attacks are not easy. They require a lot of forward planning. And so one explanation for why did Russia not try is they didn't engage in that forward planning that would have been necessary to actually cause significant cyber um, effects. Another possibility, though, is, you know, maybe this tells us something interesting about what we should expect for cyber attacks in hot conflicts going forward. Right, so maybe they're just not that valuable. If you're facing an adversary that's willing to bomb TV towers, bomb communications infrastructure, bomb all sorts of horrible things, then maybe cyber is just not that useful. Cyber is better when you're trying to be deniable, when you're trying to be precise, when you're trying maybe not to be escalatory. So I think the, the one question I have going forward is, is about what do we learn from how this played out? And none of this, just to be very clear, none of this is to say that Ukraine or the United States or neighboring countries in, Euro- or in Europe right now are out of the woods. Um, there was just another incident a couple days ago uh, where Ukrainian internet went down, one of the internet service providers went down. So, uh, and last week, President Biden issued a statement basically warning U.S. critical infrastructure to ramp up their defenses, to, you know, CISEP, which is part of the uh, Department of Homeland Security, has been running an initiative for months called Shields Up, saying, basically warning critical infrastructure to harden its defenses in the United States. Then we get this statement from Biden last week, and apparently what's behind it is that they had seen Russian government actors that had engaged in destructive attacks before doing sort of reconnaissance on U.S. targets. So there's these continued warnings that we are not out of the woods, this could still very much ramp up. But nonetheless, I think we learned we learn something interesting about the fact that the Russian invasion, for as horrible as it was, it, they, Russia didn't turn to or didn't succeed in turning to cyber attacks. And so over time, we will probably find out more about the answers to why. The Washington Post, um, in midst of all these articles recently, the Washington Post compiled 11 possible explanations for why we had not seen massive cyber attacks. <laughs> Which one or ones are correct? We really don't know, but time will tell. Can, can I follow up a little bit? Um, so this is just uh, from anecdote. But I grew up in India, uh, and I went to law school. Many of my friends I was growing up with uh, went into the tech world and now run major firms, so a massive failure. But, uh, but when I go home and I talk to them uh, about the problems they face, uh, one of the questions is, uh, in the COVID world, wh- where do you hire the best people to work on cyber issues? And I was really surprised last time that they said they were moving back offices to Ukraine, because Ukraine has really some of the best young people who work on these matters. And it's not Russia. Ukraine is one of the big hubs, uh, more so than places like Bangalore, uh, which I just not, I I don't have a sense, I think many of us don't understand, and I've actually done work in Ukraine, many of us don't really understand uh, both the closeness of the relationship of Ukraine and Russia and what is the situation on the ground with respect to cyber in, in Ukraine? My sense is they're a hell of a lot more sophisticated than we are. So uh, I, I'm not sure whether that's even a fair question, but I'm asking anyway. <laughs> uh, well, well, let me, it prompts some reflection. So let, let me uh, maybe not directly answer your question as to which is more sophisticated, the U.S. or Ukraine. Um, Ukraine, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right to say that Ukraine has some very serious cybersecurity talent. One way we have seen this play out is that Ukrainian government officials have actually called for, and I didn't talk about this, but it's worth mentioning, um, they've called for an IT army and basically have recruited volunteers to help do stuff, both defensively and maybe kind of a little bit offensively against Russia. Um, 
And so this raises fascinating international law questions about like, are they now responsible for everything these people are doing? Like, to what extent are they directing non-state actors? But it's not just non-state actors on the Ukrainian side. On the Russian side, too, um, it's probably well known to everybody, Russia has been alleged to be harboring um, pretty substantial ransomware gangs uh, for a number of years. And so some of those ransomware gangs in the early stages of the conflict began sort of pledging allegiance or pledging neutrality in the conflict. Um, and one of those, uh, an operation called Conti, um, initially sort of announced that it was going to defend Russia against cyber attacks. But it turned out Conti had Ukrainian affiliates or Ukrainian members. And so what happened in the wake of this declaration of allegiance to Russia was that allegedly uh, a Ukrainian member of Conti um, sort of defected and um, started posting online the internal basically group chats from Conti. Um, and so basically doxed the ransomware group. And so, you know, to your point, like there are close ties across borders. There's a lot of cybersecurity talent of both the licit and the illicit variety. And, you know, that came back to bite at least one of these ransomware groups. But there's a lot going on in the, yes. the non-governmental sphere. We need to, the, each of these, uh, this is just so fascinating. So Rich, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn to you because I, I want to keep Paul to tell us how it all fits together at the end. <laughs> but can you tell us what the hell is happening on the ground? How This is every day. It, it seems incredibly stressful. And also I, every day I hear, oh, they're, they're pulling back and we're going to have peace. And so uh, everybody has to rush back in and build new offices and make more money. But what's happening on the ground? <laughs> Thanks. Um, have you been there recently? You have? No, not right? recently. Not since uh, COVID, but um, a lot before COVID. Um, well, so just from a law firm standpoint, I, uh, you know, there probably are not any, maybe, uh, you know, American lawyers left on the ground. We actually, like most, I think maybe all major law firms, have cut loose our Russian offices. We used to have very substantial offices in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They're now operating independently now in reality i'm working with them right now you know they're just it's just like we have local council instead of baker mckenzie offices so and there's a good reason for that because as i'll talk i'll give you an example of uh, so you can see the complexity of it it's very difficult um, on companies attempting to manage their operations in in uh, russia these days in, in particular um, but, you know, for example, in our firm, um, we can't uh, undertake any uh, new work for Russian entities that are owned or controlled by the Russian government. And uh, we, like a lot of big law firms, um, you know, are sort of culling the client list because, um, you know, undoubtedly, particularly in our tax and high net worth practices and things like that, we have guys who qualify as Russian oligarchs, you know, the guys with the big yachts that DOJ is trying to seize now. And, uh, you know, to the extent these are SDNs, this term, specially designated nationals right here, uh, they, um, you know, you can't deal with them at all. So they just, we just have to stop doing business with them. But I wanted to give you just in a few minutes a, a bit of an example of a problem that we're dealing with now with respect to one particular client. So I'll give you a little bit of background. This is an American company that makes industrial products, components for assembly into bigger products. Um, years years ago, a couple of decades ago, they formed a joint venture with um, two Russian partners. Um, and they've operated this joint venture. They, they have 51% of the venture. They own it. I probably should sketch this for you, but they own it through um, a Dutch company. They each own shares in a Dutch company. The Dutch company owns the Russian company, okay? Because it's a little bit important for the example that you have some idea of the, of the structure. And the, the, the reason for this, usually these are tax-driven and, and um, they're advent you know, advantages to setting up a business that way in Russia and have been for many years. So um, the first, first issue that these guys face is... Um, uh, the sort of the sanction side of this. So let me try to put some like meat on what Pierre sketched out for you, how this, this now really works. So no U.S. person, as, we, as Pierre mentioned, can deal with a specially designated national, what we call an, an SDN. 
So that means the company itself, our client, based in Pennsylvania, and it also means any Americans involved in the, in the business. Now, um, the Russian entity can deal with SDNs. However, really important caveats, and this is where, I mean, so far the rules have been like crystal clear, right? Well, now it begins to show you some of the complexity. So, yes, the, the joint venture can deal with all the bad guys, um, but that, that activity cannot be facilitated by a U.S. person. I didn't tell you, but up until very recently, the general director of the joint venture, the equivalent of the CEO, was an American. So how would the Russian entity deal with SDNs without the general director's involvement? Pretty much impossible. He's no longer the general director. You can obviously see why that would be the case. But no U.S. person can facilitate. And in our case, remember, our guys sell components to this venture. They, nobody in the, no U.S. person can sell to the joint venture knowing or, you know, should have known, you know, kind of constructive knowledge that those components were going to go to an SDN or the products assembled would eventually go to an SDN. So, so this idea that, well, you know, um, the Russian entity can continue to deal is, as a practical matter, really limited. So um, now sort of then, and let me give you an idea of sort of how these things work <clears throat> with entities and individuals. So we, so the venture or any of the participants can deal with an entity that's not an SDN in Russia, right? That's clear. But if, let's say, the CEO of the entity is an SDN, so for example, Sparebank is not yet an SDN, right? Mm-hmm. But Gref, I think. Gref has been yeah. designated, So yes. the head of Sparebank, who's a very famous Russian business political figure, Herman Gref, has been now designated as an SDN. So while a U.S. person could enter, you know, could do business with Sparebank, I think, up, you know, in some limited way, you could not sit opposite Herman Gref and negotiate a transaction with Sparebank. So this is how these weird things kind of work. Now, the other thing, just to throw in here because it's relevant, is that we sell, you know, company sells industrial components. And so there's an export control analysis to this, too. And although the components are sold under a general license, um, which effectively means no license, what has now changed in this realm for our guys is they are not allowed to sell for any military use. So that requires them to get certifications at a minimum for when they, when they sell the product to an entity that then might resell or would resell in the way the business works. That entity has to certify that they're not selling to, uh, you know, to a military end user. And then you, know, you try also to get the certification from the customer, ultimate customer itself, that they're not going to use for military purposes. So that's kind of the U.S., uh, background. But now the other side of this is the Russian side, because as you maybe have read, the Russians have reacted to this. And there are a series now, I think, up to four decrees that um, uh, President Putin has issued that um, are in response to the hostilities created by people, you know, countries that are uh, opposed to Russia. So, for example, were our guys to try to sell their interest in the Russian joint venture, you know, the, there's a specific provision of a Russian decree that prohibits a Russian national from paying for that interest. They might say, well, okay, sell the shares in the Dutch entity. This used to be a way to circumvent a lot of problems in Russia, just go up the corporate chain. But the decree specifically talks about Non, non-Russian or non-resident entities, which we covered it. So they're, they're stuck there. They, they uh, operate in a city in Russia called Saratov. And, and uh, two days ago, they received a threat from the prosecutor's office, basically saying to them, you are not permitted to suspend your operations 
um, in, unless there is a legitimate business reason to do so. And if you do that, administrative and criminal sanctions will follow. Now, out there, not yet, I don't think yet, although day-to-day -day so it's hard for me to follow sometimes, is um, the Russian parliament debating legislation that would criminalize any um, act um, to comply with U.S. sanctions, right? So go back to our example. If, you know, our guys say, well, U.S. persons, we can't sell to an SDN, and, and, and you know, then Russian law kicks in, and the individual involved in that activity could end up being charged criminally for that. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the final thing I'll say on this is, and this is, you've probably read, you know, McDonald's has suspended operations, they're continuing to pay employees. But all these companies that have announced suspensions, uh, more legislation is pending on the Russia side that would put enterprises whose operations have been suspended by foreigners under administration. This is code word for we're going to steal your business. So this is quite, and you can, you can see how difficult it is for companies to navigate this, you know, both on the U.S. and the Russian side. And it, look, it's, it's a mess, just a, a mess. Rich, um, just my understanding is you studied, you are an expert in Soviet studies, uh, at some point, and okay, I won't hold hold that against you. But what is what is your gut sense, if you don't mind my asking, of what the future is? I mean, is this just a blip, and we're going to go back to things uh, as normal? McDonald's is going to go back to selling its burgers in a few days, or Heineken will sell its beers, or is this? This is the end. Baker and McKinsey is going to be gone. Sullivan and Cromwell, Cleary Gottlieb, they're all, no longer will they get those payments from, I mean, I, I worked at one of these firms. I mean, Russia was a huge client. I mean, it is hard to imagine those partners having given this up very easily. Uh, are they just waiting to go back in, or is this a fundamental well, look, change? I mean, if, it, if it ends, if they negotiate a peace treaty in a matter of weeks, or in a matter some, of days, is it yeah, back to normal? Possibly. No, it won't be. It'll take some time to get back to normal, but at least there's the prospect of some return to normal activity. What's your gut? It's going to be a long time. Yeah. Yeah, years, maybe. And, and one thing perhaps that's worth noting about just the more narrowly on the impact of the sanctions is that one thing that was revealed by the experience of Iran is that even during the period when the, the joint plan was in action, uh, Iran was very frustrated by how difficult it was to draw in, you know, so the sanctions had been lifted, how hard it was to restore these economic relations with the rest of the world. All of these things are complicated. These correspondent accounts that were cut off, you can't just walk back into city and put them in place again. They, you know, they have extensive checks that they're going to have to make to reestablish these uh, these financial pathways. Uh, they may be worried about reputational uh, issues, about what's going to happen in the future. Are these sanctions going to be imposed again if Russia kind of misbehaves again next year? And maybe we should just not get back at all. Uh, and that goes through the ramifications uh, exist through the whole range of economic relations that exist. You know, someone mentioned that with all of the stuff that's going on with respect to, to airlines and, uh, and, and airplane leases, right, all of these planes that were seized in Russia and vice versa, uh, the Russian planes that are frozen in place in various places in the West, uh, entrance rates are going to, you know, even if we go back to normal, Insurance rates for uh, aviation operators connected to Russia or in Russia are going to skyrocket. So it's going to be very difficult to reestablish a lot of these. And this is just one example amongst many. So, Paul, I'm hoping you can tell us how we misplayed this, if you agree with that characterization, so badly that to me it seems like until days before the invasion, we still thought it couldn't happen. Uh, and when I say we, uh, at least I mean the, the press accounts that 
I was reading. Uh, I watched the prices of Russian assets, at least bonds, and they seemed to think that, uh, had the view that this was not going to happen. I, how did we how did we go wrong? Uh. So uh, going wrong is kind of sweeping me too. I I, I think uh, did we do anything right? Well, I want to start by saying I think the Biden administration has handled this really well. Uh, from the time they took jurisdiction over it, uh, the risks they've been taking is blowing intelligence resources by revealing what they know. But I, I think they did a very good job of warning people uh, what was going to happen. And if the bond market didn't listen, shame on the bond market, it seems to me. Uh, so uh, I wanted to start saying that because if you want to say when did we make mistakes, <coughs> although they were understandable ones, I would start with this proposition that 2014 was objectively identical to what happened in uh, the end of February 2022. That's to say there was a threat of an armed invasion uh, with respect to Crimea and effectively an armed invasion, although not with people wearing formal uniforms in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and there was an annexation under threat of force, which from an international law perspective, you know, that's a big deal. That's the one thing that we aren't supposed to have happened, and that happened in 2014. Uh, and uh, the reaction of the West was, uh, this is Russia acting up, and we just don't take them seriously. It's too bad for Ukraine. Uh, sanctions started at that point, uh, so we were using those weapons. But uh, I, I think it's fair to say that there was not a perception that uh, the events of 2014 put the entire international legal order and the geopolitical order at risk. Um, you know, scholars who I admire said, if this happens again, we'll have to worry. But so far, it's just the exception that proves the rule was, was sort of the line. And, and I, you know, am Dutch Calvinist that I am. I always have a more dismal view of things. So I, I think that we were in trouble earlier on. And I think what's really changed was the events of 2016 Brexit and 2017, well, the 2016 presidential election, which I think was a wake-up call for the West and made us feel less resilient, less confident, uh, less sure about uh, this international order and system of international rules that we believe in. Uh, so that when we have a rerun of 2014, now we're anxious. Now we feel threatened, and uh, we do respond. Uh, you asked me what I thought we might be doing wrong now. I, I think, again, I think the uh, Biden administration has handled this really well. I worry when I see press coverage of this and when I listen to you know, people who talk for a living, you know, people like us, uh, when the, their take on this, because I think there is a very understandable... Uh, but unfortunate tendency to try to make sense of things that are really hard and complex. I mean, one of my dear friends, a former colleague here, a sort of radical feminist legal scholar, uh, asked me, who should I be rooting for here? On the assumption that usually with wars you don't root, they're terrible, but this one seemed like one where she ought to pick a side. And, and I tried to say, really, this is an awful event. It's going to be awful for everybody. And of course, armed aggression is wrong. Of course you want to see armed aggression be punished, but my goodness, you know, that happened in 2014, and if you really want to be tough on us, uh, we have stories for distinguishing what we did in 2003 uh, in Iraq and what we did in uh, Syria, uh, but they're stories, and the Russians have a story too, and I happen to like our stories better than I like the Russian story, but I don't think it the difference in these stories is so so vast that we shouldn't be at least a little bit concerned that simply saying armed intervention, the moral universe is clear, clear winners, clear losers. Uh, I don't think we can look at it moral, at moral terms. So I think we have to look at the objective correlation of forces, to use Marxist terminology. That wow. I, I, and, and uh, you know, I, I, so uh, I, I think uh, the... As everyone has been saying, I think the cost to Russia of this is going to be very serious for a long time, economically, 
the morale of their human capital. Uh, they've got smart, techie kids too, and and I, I think they are right now unemployed and demoralized, and 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 uh, and I think people wanting to put faith back into Russia is going to be a long time before that happens. Uh, Ukraine is suffering terribly. I mean, not all the four million people who've emigrated so far are going to come back, and I think that's probably disproportion disproportionately pretty talented people, you know, it's, it's part of their future. Um, and then how do we deal with it with our European allies? I mean, the optimistic story is that the consensus that we've been talking sticks. I didn't think it was going to happen. You know, I, I've, I've talked to friends in the administration, and I, I think people were surprised that the Germans would actually stand up and do what they've done so far. Uh, and, and we still don't know that, uh, you know, come the fall and things get cold, what the, uh, when energy becomes important, what the Germans, what the Italians, what the French will be doing, and whether there'll be a good diplomacy and generosity and a cohesion and resilience, or whether finger pointing will start to be unfold and, and you know, we squabble among ourselves. So I don't know. There's a good story that says this is a wake-up call. We've learned some important things, and we will approach the future uh, better. But there also is the risk that our hopes, uh, once the peace agreement takes form, assuming things don't spiral out of control, and we actually get a peace agreement, uh, there will be recriminations and uh, an attempt to put it all behind us, and we won't learn the lessons we should learn. So I, I hope we do. Um, uh, but I don't think we can count on it. So just very quickly, and then I want to ask all of you if you would just give us a sense of how you think the international legal order has A, changed, and B, is, is going to change. But Paul, uh, so a couple weeks ago, uh, on a Wednesday, Russia had its first bond payment due that roughly around $100 million that many of us who are supposed experts on this, uh, myself included, I think I went on at least 10 news shows, uh, a lot for me, um, predicted, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> predicted that they would not make the payments. And even if they did make the dollar payments, that the U.S. Treasury would not let the payments through. And you know, I did, uh, I t did try to read some of the sanctions orders and stuff like that, the stuff that Pierre uh, and Rich know how to read. It's just gibberish. I couldn't make any sense of any of them. Uh, but my prediction was no, no payment would not be made. And I went to Paul, uh, as I often do, to say, what do you think, Paul, uh, so that I could use it? things are more complicated. I'm not so sure that it's as easy. Putin's not as crazy as you think. This, this, is, this is a more nuanced uh, set of uh, events and moves that are taking place. Paul was right. I would have made a lot of money if I had listened to him, and if anybody listened to me, they lost a lot of money. Um, the payments were made, and the Treasury left the money through. Paul, I, why did, how did you, how were you able to predict what was going to happen? And can you give us a sort of bigger picture about, Putin is not crazy, I think, according to you. And these are moves that are being made that one can anticipate. So, me too, you are characteristically too kind to me. And I love that about you. I, mean, uh, I'm I wouldn't sure have made I a lot of money if I listened to you. Yeah, I'm not sure I was nearly as clear uh, when I was talking to you as you think I was. Uh, uh, so, I, I, I risk uttering platitudes, but there was a East European scholar who was here back in the early 90s uh, who's had a great run. He's now uh, one of the advocates on the Luxembourg court, uh, the Bulgarian advocate on that court. And, and uh, he did a chapter for a book I did on the transition in the early 90s in which he said, uh, he commented uh, throughout the region how legal utopianism led so quickly to legal nihilism. 
and and how many people, particularly in the law professor community that he was part, you know, thought, okay, snap your fingers, turn around, everything's going to be perfect. And as soon as it wasn't, they were crushed, and and uh, some, you know, became incredibly corrupt or did other things, or uh, but. Uh, he kept plugging along and, and has really had a, a, a very important, solid career. What, what am I taking out of this? So I, I, I think we have to realize that we're facing a very complex situation that uh, the challenges have been accumulating, accumulating for years, uh, that a lot of the choices that we're going to have to be to make will not be easy, uh, morally, uh, uh, clear choices, but that there is a difference between uh, smart and dumb and less bad and more bad. And, and that uh, I think that's the lens we have to take uh, when we're confronting things like how do we restructure economic relations, what sacrifices are we willing to make to respond to legitimate uh, security risks, how do we identify security risks? Uh, you know, I don't think uh, uh, referencing Kristen's talk. I'm mean, just because the really bad cyber stuff hasn't happened yet doesn't mean I think it won't. I think we have to be very vigilant about that. Um, so, uh, you know, we we have to find a way to uh, uh, be vigilant, tough-minded, uh, pragmatic, and and still have fun along the way. <laughs> All right, so I, I don't. Before we end, uh, I know we are short on time. I'm hoping uh, each of you would be so kind as to give us a sense of sort of the, the bigger picture. Uh, in a sense, this is Paul's new book. Uh, has the international legal order fundamentally changed, and or is it going to change? I mean, uh, maybe we'll have a peace treaty and everything will go back to normal. But I think, as Rich said, that, that you know, it, it just doesn't seem that likely. I hope so, but. The big picture, maybe we can go in the same order that we did, Pierre and then Kirsten. And so, uh, for the past, I guess, 30 or 40 years, the, the direction of the international economic order has been towards greater integration, greater interdependence, basically bringing all countries, even countries that we might have anticipated would have divergent strategic interests like China and Russia, uh, into multilateral institutions, into things like the WTO, the World Trading System, uh, and all of the, uh, and, and the, crea the creation of very um, profound links of economic interdependence. And this is, I think, very representative of the turning point that we're in. Right. In the world of globalization and interdependence, if you're in Germany, it doesn't matter that all of your energy is coming from Russia. Um, you know, the strategic implications of that are not very clear because we're part of a liberalized world order where everyone is on the same page and we pay for gas and Russia sends us gas. It's not a problem. And these links of interdependence when a conflict arises, uh, then kind of condition the reaction that you're able to have, right? It's, it's on the one hand, it means we can sanction the Russian banks and it has a big impact on Russia because Russia has for the past 30 years integrated itself in the world economic system and they're dependent on these links and cutting them off is costly to them. But it also means that everyone from that point on has an interest in cutting these ties and becoming more autarkic, less interdependent, the Germans have all the incentives in the world now to try to reduce their energy dependence on Russia. And if they manage to do that, which, which will take years and will be hard, but once it's done, it's done. And the world will not be the same. There will not be the same incentives to have the kind of political, legal, economic ties as there were before. And I think we, and, and once Russia, once, it's, once again, once Russia manages to figure out ways to work around sanctions and work through systems, for example, re, you know, shift some of their exports and imports from the West to China, uh, that also is not going to be something that can turn back on a dime. So I think this is a reorganization of the world economy that's been going on for a few years, but is being, being accelerated by this, and it's really going to change the world where we live in, unless it's reversed you know, much quicker than I anticipate. 
Kirsten? I mean, I think for the last few years are just a list of things that we would have previously thought were unthinkable. And to me, one of the lessons I'm taking away from that is that we're really not thinking hard enough or creatively enough. And we need to learn to adjust to a world where previously unthinkable things are happening with some frequency. And so the international system better adjust because it turns out that it's a whole lot more fragile than we thought, both internationally and I would say domestically in the United States. And the two are intertwined. I mean, one of, as Paul said, I think the Biden administration has actually handled this extremely well. They were dealt a very bad hand. And they've, they've done some interesting things with the intel disclosures, with allowing European allies to sort of be credited with taking the lead on certain things that have been, I think, crucial in the response to this. So, you know, the United States has a lot of work to do, I think, in thinking about its place in the world and thinking about its strategy going forward. We're also seeing international institutions begin to mobilize. I mean, we've, we've been focusing on a lot of the economic aspects of this, on the sort of theoretical pieces, but the human toll of this is just horrific. I mean, Paul mentioned four million refugees, and that's not counting internally displaced people in Ukraine. We also haven't really touched on war crimes, which have been absolutely rampant. So another place where the international legal system may have a chance to make a difference here is after the fact with respect to accountability for not just the war of aggression, but for the individual perpetrators of some of these horrific war crimes. So, you know, I think we're, the international system is facing in a tremendous amount of stress. It is more fragile than we thought. Um, but I think, you know, it may also have a chance to shine eventually in the aftermath of this. So I think we need to think more creatively about how to protect the institutions and values we care about internationally and domestically. Thank you. So um, I think what Pierre and Kristen said really excellent. I personally think we're headed into something like a new Cold War. You know, Paul and I are old enough that we remember what the old Cold War was like. But in that uh, in that period, um, I want to turn it back, Mita, to you. India played a kind of a, you know, an interesting role. And I am very surprised that yeah, India's move. I am shocked. I, and I all do wonder whether uh, who's in power matters because uh, Modi was very close to Trump and I, you know, is not as close to the Biden administration. Uh, and they have chosen to move closer to Russia. My impression is that this is not viewed in India, especially among the young people, as such a good thing. But I, I just, I have no really good sense of what is going on. I suspect that at a national level, India sees a significant value in being able to be there for Russia. Uh, that after that there will be peace talks soon, everything will settle, and then Russia will be uh, more closely connected to India. But, you know, I, I, I don't know that, I'm just, just guessing. And certainly this is a topic of intense debate in India right now. I suspect it is a topic of intense debate in China. And we don't, most of us don't have a good sense of, this is a big deal for the rest of the world uh, as well. But you, I mean, you know, you have a much better sense of how these are playing out in all these different parts of the world. Well, at least the Indian debate will be Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is going on. If we were watching YouTube, we would see it ongoing. But Paul, you, you have the final word. I mean, your, your book sort of predicted this would happen. Did it, or uh, well, you were talking about the sort of the, that the international legal order is not as strong as we think, and the years under Donald J. Trump have maybe shown us that it is uh, not going in the direction that Pierre mentioned we all thought we were going in, and now we have this, which seems to be accelerating a move uh, away from the optimistic view about international legal institutions. Well, it is a Marxist move to say that these things are going on all the time and it's just a certain events. You've mentioned Marxist views multiple times now. <laughs> so events uh, reveal what's been going on. 
you know, and people think that it's the event itself when really it is simply exposing uh, forces that have been moving slowly but inexorably over time. And, and I, that is my perspective on these events, that we're learning things that we should have perhaps suspected all along. Uh, we have to be careful about taking away too much clarity from these events, I think, uh, because things are still going on that we don't understand. Um, uh, the one thing that we haven't really talked to, uh, although you just touched on it at the end, you know, I think at the end of the day, all this stuff going on in Europe, it's heartbreaking, it's wrenching, it's costly, it's disruptive. But I think it's a sideshow compared to what's going to be going on with China and the rest of the world. I still think that's the more important story. And, and uh, how that will play out, uh, who knows? I mean, I... I I kind of like our way of doing things, and I think they've been showing off some of their vulnerabilities recently. Uh, I, I actually think that developments under Xi have, uh, they've been awesome in the literal sense of showing the power that uh, he can command and some of the technological prowess they've been able to harvest, but I also think they're showing some vulnerabilities as well. We have been showing plenty of our own vulnerabilities over the last six or seven years. Uh, so how this will play out will be interesting to watch. But I, I don't think at the end of the day we should let ourselves be distracted from thinking that how China and the United States, China and Europe and the United States occupy this planet together in what we hope is a uh, flourishing uh, and sustainable way is really the great challenge. Thank you. I, I, I want to end on a optimistic note, and, but I'm taking a risk in asking Pierre whether this is an optimistic note, and maybe Kirsten will uh, uh, chime in too. But one of the things that, on, on a day when I was very down and depressed about what was going on in our world, I think it was gray outside, uh, Pierre was sitting outside at a table by himself. Um, he looked a little bit down, and anyway, I went over to him, and he said, you know, it's not so bad. There are some really good things that have come out of this. And one of them is that the, the cooperation among nations in response to what, in response to this invasion, I, it's, I, they, they, what else do you call it? Uh, unprovoked invasion it, it has been remarkable. It, it's a kind of cooperation we haven't seen, and maybe those of us who worked in Europe recently thought was not plausible, uh, not likely to happen. Um, here, I, maybe I'm, I'm mis, misremembering our conversation, but I thought you said, look, there are, there are good signs here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, one, of the, you know, one of the caveats to that that's come out of this conversation is that the reaction you know, on on paper, in terms of what countries are saying is broader, things like uh, UN General Assembly, you know, resolutions have very broadly condemned the uh, attack on Ukraine. If you look at what's actually be being done in terms of sanctions and in terms of, you know, doing something about it, it's a more restricted world. It is, you know, the West, essentially. But it is a response that is more coordinated and more resolute than anything we've seen in the past. And so uh, I think it does open up new possibilities. Uh, I think it opens up the possibility of bringing the United States and Europe closer together again, which in my personal view is, is a good thing, uh, and of bringing uh, Europe itself uh, more of a sense of cohesion, uh, which I also think is a good thing. So if you look at developments in different parts of the world and if you uh, kind of restrict your point of view to... Uh, the countries that historically have been uh, more closely aligned with the United States and what we used to call the free world, uh, you know, I do think that there is, uh, there are signs that are, in my mind somewhat, uh, give some ground for optimism that, and that also, uh, you know, what's the relationship between this and, uh, you know, populism and what's been happening in recent years in, uh, in, in, in domestic politics in the West, uh, you know, I think there's a possibility. And here I want to be you know, very careful about making predictions, but it's, it's going to diffuse some of the internal strife 
uh, that's been so instrumental in uh, kind of dividing people within Western societies to have this sort of one thing that most everyone agrees on. So, uh, so that may be excessively optimistic, but that was my my semi-optimistic take, and I'm sure that I'm, I'm uh, certainly I'm happy that it brightened it brightened your day on, on that. It did, it did, Kirsten. Can I? Uh, we can you be optimistic uh, about? I mean, you did mention the the possibility. I mean, Paul mentioned, uh, you know, what a wimpy response we had in 2014, and I, I mean, I remember. I was supposed to go to Kiev to talk about how, in litigation, uh, the Ukrainians could uh, get more in terms of penalties from the Russians for what they had done. And I was disinvited. They say, we'll pay for your plane ticket. You can come here, but you're not allowed to speak uh, because it might offend the Russians. I'm like, they just took Crimea. We're like, what the hell? Think you're worried about offending them? Um, but. The, the, there was this sense of like, let's just forget it and get back to normal and back to business as usual. And, you know, but you talked about how the global order, we, this time we might actually have uh, war crimes. We might, might think about things a little more seriously than we did in 2014. That strikes me as uh, you were being optimistic about the world order. I mean, if talking about convictions for war crimes is optimism. I guess I guess I can go along with that version of it. Um, I mean... You're not, <laughs> not helping me here. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, the fact that there have been war crimes does not mean that there will be convictions for war crimes. I mean, this we have seen war crimes all over the world. These are war crimes in Europe, which for reasons that, you know, we can all speculate about might be more likely to actually produce convictions. But that is also not an optimistic take on the state of the world and the state of uh, international crimes. Um, but, you know, I think, I guess I hold out hope that the international system will react and that we will not just revert back to normal. I don't think we can afford to continue living with the delusion that we can just quickly revert back to normal after massive international shocks. And yet in instance after instance, that's what we see happen. So that's not optimism. <laughs> well, let me say something on that. Um, this is an aspect we haven't really touched on, but and it's um, maybe indicative as uh, my my career pattern. You know, I went from commercial lawyer, of, you know, with a, a Russian practice, to an expert on international corruption. I like to joke I learned it all at the feet of the masters in Russia. <laughs> and really, I think this this puts on the world stage the limits of the Russian approach to governance and puts in a much better light the Western approach. And, you know, the studies haven't been done yet of what, what are the consequences of a profoundly corrupt society run by a, a, a cabal of, you know, former KGB types. What is that? You know, you guys will do the studies on this in the coming decades, but it's, you know, the shortcomings of it are very clear now. How's that for optimism? <laughs> okay, it's hard to drag optimism out of them. Pierre gave me a little bit, though. Uh, but I should turn things back to Rachel and uh, Emily. Thank you so much for hosting this event and giving me an opportunity to join you. I certainly learned a lot, so thank you. Thank you.